Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. The Crime Couch is proudly sponsored by Bank Vic. Peter Norden is a former Catholic chaplain and worked in Pentridge Prison. He spent more than 40 years in the Australian criminal justice system. He established the Brosnan Centre, an accommodation centre for high-risk young men, just out of prison. In 2007, Peter was made an officer in the Order of Australia for his services to programs assisting young people and offenders and to Australia's mental health sector. He's highly credentialed and a strong advocate for social justice and prison reform. Recently, Peter's published a book entitled Seeking Justice in the Criminal Justice System in Australia. Hi, Peter, and uh, welcome to The Crime Couch. Thanks, Rochelle. Why did you become a chaplain? Well, it began during the 1970s when I was still studying at Melbourne University. I was studying social work and I was doing some community work in the high-rise flats of North Melbourne and Flemington and Kensington. And in that area, there were quite a few young people who had some conflict with the law. So it was that exposure to teenagers, really, uh, very ordinary kids from low-income families uh, who from time to time had difficulties with the police or stole a car. Uh, and so that was very early on when I was only 21, 22, uh, working in the high-rise in a city flats. You worked in Pentridge for 16 years. Now, initially as a social worker and then as a chaplain, tell me what did your role involve as a chaplain? Well, it was a fairly broadly defined role rather than what most people might think that a chaplain or a priest might do in the prison. Uh, you know, when you think of a church minister these days, you think of someone who does weddings, baptisms and funerals and Sunday services. But really the, the broadly defined role of a chaplain is about being engaged with the whole community. So within the prison, uh, what would I spend most of my time doing? not doing those Sunday services, but visiting uh, the workplaces, the visit centre, the education centres. Uh, so involved in all aspects of the prison. And out of that comes the more uh, counsellor role, more professional role. And then only as a result of that real engagement in people's lives becomes the specifically priestly role or the chaplain role. You've had a, an extraordinary experience working in one of the toughest places you could possibly work in um, as a chaplain. Tell me, what was the worst thing you experienced in the criminal justice system? Rochelle, that's a question that I've been asked um, recently, in fact, before the book was launched. Uh, and in the book, I actually address that question. I say the worst thing that ever happened, I don't want to answer that question by saying it was the murders or the rapes or the suicides that I had to observe or that I had to respond to. What The worst thing that I saw in the, in the prison system 
and the criminal justice system more broadly was the increasing proportion of people coming into the prison who weren't professionally criminal, but were people with disability of one sort or another. What upset you about that or what moved you about that? Well, there's a certain percentage of people with a classified disability in our community. The professionals say it's about 17%, whether it be physical, psychological or, or social. Within the prison system, it's three times that rate. So you've almost got one in two of the prisoners who have got some defined disability. It could be emotional disturbance or some more serious mental illness, uh, but also intellectual disability. Um, And those people in a tough place uh, like a maximum security prison are the most vulnerable and therefore they can be taken advantage of. And that was the most disturbing thing that I saw over the years and even since the increasing proportion of people who are making up the expanding prison population throughout our country are people whose primary issue is one of disability rather than criminality. You've been a a close confidant to a lot of, I suppose, nefarious characters and criminals, including people such as Mario Condello and Graham Kinneborough. How do you manage those relationships? And I'm really interested to know where do you draw the line about privilege and and the information that you get told about? Well, in the book, I was very careful not to discuss individuals uh, of the ones like the ones that you mentioned, uh, because the relationship of confidence between a prison chaplain and the prisoner uh, population is really important. Uh, and it's not purely in the confessional situation, It's in the professional situation. So I would have spent a lot of time building confidence and relationships between the the men and women that I worked with in the prisons. Uh, And that sometimes takes years. And out of that relationship of trust and confidence becomes the opportunity to be an advisor, a counsellor, or just a companion. So to to actually breach that confidence is a very serious matter. Not just what people are more commonly aware of, the confessional secret, which has been discussed quite a bit in recent times about child sex abuse, but it's it's much broader than that. It's looking at the the relationship of engagement with people. In the prison, I always felt that uh, the chaplain, in, in, in my role as a chaplain, was about the only person in the place that could be trusted. The prisoners, of course, didn't trust the staff, even if they were welfare people or psychologists, uh, and they certainly didn't trust each other. In the old days, uh, they did trust each other because there were strong friendships which endured over decades. Mm. Uh, But in more recent times, uh, particularly with the advent of uh, drugs in uh, in in the prison system, there was no one able to trust each other because relationships could change overnight. Mm. And loyalties too, wouldn't they? Absolutely, which made it far more difficult for the management of the prison because previously they could predict if, if prisoner A was a mate of prisoner B and that had been uh, well established over years, they would be able to predict with a certain degree of certainty that they'd be okay together. Mm. But then this changed, I'd say close to 20 years ago now. And what do you think the sliding and shifting loyalties, what's that due to? 
Um, it's about opportunism, essentially. I make this comment in the book when I talk about Carl Williams and how he was killed in um, the Acacia section of Barwon Prison. Uh, I uh, had to write a report uh, supporting his family uh, who were offered financial uh, benefits as a result of Williams allegedly giving information about other potential criminals. Uh, And uh, what happened with Williams is that the relationship changed with the two other prisoners that he was with previously. He felt safe, uh, but over a period of weeks and months, that relationship changed and the prison authorities weren't onto it, and they should have been. And that was the essence of the report that I wrote for the Supreme Court, uh, to say that they didn't assess the changing risk from day one to day down the line. Very interesting because during that time I was also writing inside their minds and I was dealing with Carl and also dealing with George Williams and I knew that he was advocating strongly to be in the general prison population again but that was refused time and time again. Yes, well uh, the general prison population means outside of Acacia, the high security unit, Uh, but uh, you know, even if a prisoner does feel uncomfortable in the environment that he's in, and I don't want to talk about any more the details of that case, uh, but you lose face if you say, I don't feel safe anymore. Mm. So you've got to pretend that you're not anxious about it. Mm. Otherwise, you go on protection. And for someone in his situation, that could mean years and years in virtual solitary isolation. You were very much involved in the exhumation of Ronald Ryan's body, uh, the last man, of course, to be executed by the state. Why was that important for you, Peter? Ronald Ryan was executed in 1967, and as you say, he was the last person executed throughout Australia. He had been executed when I was in year 12 at high school, and uh, it was quite a big event in Melbourne at the time, possibly around Australia. Uh, but I had met his daughters, and at the time of his execution in 67, his three daughters were young children. I can't remember, 10, 12, 14. And, uh, but since then, they were continuing to be punished by the fact that their father was public property on the media at least every month or two for years and years and years, mm. and they could never visit their father's grave. It was an unmarked grave. So when I first became chaplain in 1985, full-time, I arranged on the anniversary of his death for the three daughters to come and lay a floral wreath, which they did. We stayed there for five or ten minutes. As soon as we turned the corner, that floral wreath was thrown in the dump master on the orders of the governor. Ten years later, we had a a memorial service outside the front of the prison, uh, and uh, again, no Mark Grave, but by this time the prison site was sold for private housing. Mm. And the government had, at the time of the closure, promised that there would be a, uh, not a tribute, but an acknowledgement of the, uh, the people who had been executed either at Pentridge or the old Melbourne jail, mm. whose remains were transferred to Pentridge in 19, uh, uh, 1929, I think it was. So uh, I had met the three daughters and when it, and it was no longer a prison site, and it was just owned by someone who was trying to make a quid. 
uh, by building and selling apartments, I realised there was no reason why the family couldn't claim the body because it was no longer in the secure prison grounds. It was public property where people could walk past. And so we did that. We, um, on my encouragement, they applied uh, for a licence of exhumation. The body was truly identified uh, as that of Ronald Ryan, and I conducted his funeral. Um, it was the last church funeral that I conducted, in fact. It was only the three daughters uh, and Tobin brothers who did an excellent job. Uh, and he was cremated, and now his remains are with his wife, Dorothy, in the Portland Cemetery. Bank Vic was founded by police in 1974 to help members get a better deal on banking. Things are better today, but Bank Vic's purpose is the same. To serve the police better than the other banks with great rates and personal service. With a branch inside Victoria Police Centre and mobile lenders visiting stations or available by appointment, they're available where and when it suits you. Bank Vic get police because they've been helping them with their banking for nearly 50 years. To find out more, go to bankvic.com.au slash thecrimecouch. Bankvic is the trading name of Police Financial Services Limited, ABN 33087651661. It's very interesting. You've had such a, a really fascinating career in lots of senses. You visited H Division, um, the roughest and toughest division in Pentridge, where Billy the Texan Longley was housed. Now, I wrote about Billy Longley. I did his biography in your face. What are your memories of the Texan, Peter? Billy's passed away now, um, and uh, but I did know him. But I my dealings with Billy, he was out of Pentridge. He was in Ararat Prison. And uh, apart from Pentridge Prison and Bowen Prison, I'd also go to other country prisons such as Ararat. Mm. And... Uh, I would go to Ararat Prison probably every six weeks or every eight weeks. I'd always spend time visiting Bill. He had a perhaps a more spacious uh, complex out the back of the prison with four or five other prisoners who were a bit older and more mature. And we had long conversations. I mean long conversations, 40, 50 minutes. Um, and uh, I was struck by the man. Um, he had a presence about him. Clearly, his past was a checkered career, and uh, he uh, hasn't made too many acknowledgments of the things that he was convicted of, but uh, he was very well respected by the old guard. But the the new guard, the young bucks, you know, no one knew what could they happen. They would know him, would they? Well, they'd know by reputation, because okay. when you come into prison, they say, who's that old bloke? And they say, that's Billy the Texan. Uh, and uh, certainly word of mouth spreads around. That's what happens in an unstable environment where people are moving around within the prison, somewhat supervised, but you've got to work out who's that, who's that, where am I safe, where am I not safe, who do I link with, who are my mates, who are potential enemies or threats. Did you even have to do that as a chaplain? Fortunately, no, I don't think I did. Um, by the time I started working full-time as the chaplain at Pentridge and the other Victorian prisons, it was 1985, I was 35 years of age. I'd already spent 10 or 15 years working with young offenders, uh, both at uh, Parkville, at Malmesbury, Langy Kelkel, which used to be a youth training mm -hmm. centre, uh, but also I had been visiting uh, Pentridge itself for several years. 
So my relationships were already established before I started working full time. Uh, many of the fellows there, uh, lesser extent the women, uh, but I knew from earlier days of youth work in the local communities or at uh, what's now called Melbourne Juvenile Justice Centre or Malmesbury. But what was important uh, was that my main interest in being a chaplain was to work with the most vulnerable. But in an environment like a prison, the trick of being successful was to win the confidence of the most influential or the most powerful prisoners because there's a pecking order. And while they didn't need my assistance in the same way as more vulnerable people, younger prisoners or prisoners with disability, to be effective in that environment, you had to get the approval of the, of the most influential of the prisoners. And so that was a, something that I had to set about doing in order to give me greater freedom and greater opportunity. And I suppose the best intel. Yes, their intel was usually pretty limited. They, they might have certain information, but people like Chopper Reed that I would visit in H Division in the later years, he would call to see me, not for spiritual advice, but he was looking for intel. What's going on in other parts of the prison? Tell us what's happened, who's come in, you know, what's likely to happen in the next uh, few weeks. And so I had to balance that. He and um, another prisoner who's still in custody uh, was looking, they were looking for information from me, not inside information, but gossip, prison gossip, because they're in an isolation unit. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, my father spent quite a bit of time also working with prisoners and one of the things he would always say is that they've got an enormous amount of time to strategize and to plan and anyone that comes into their realm or into their world is fair game. So, I mean, how do you how do you deal with that as a chaplain? I mean, how do you it's a it's a pretty fine line because you've got your own agenda. I mean, it, do you think these hard crims are, are able to be rehabilitated, Peter? Well, first of all, let me preface my answer to that last question by saying it was pretty important when I was working in the prison not to be part of one particular group or some people might call gang or association. And uh, particularly as a couple of years went by when I had uh, the capacity to comment on what was going on in the media or to represent issues with the director of prisons or the minister for prisons. Uh, there was a certain sought after commodity, but I was determined not to be drawn in by any particular uh, group or clique of prisoners so that I would be more broadly available. Um, so uh, that was the, the biggest danger. But I, you said I had an agenda. I mean, my agenda wasn't about, <laughs> you know, for example, conversions. My agenda was to be a pastor, and that is to be engaged, to be available, to be a friend, to be a companion. Uh, and sometimes that would uh, you know, move into much deeper areas around guilt or forgiveness. But generally, it was built on that normal human relationship of trust, friendship, engagement, good humor. Uh, and out of that came the more... Um, deeper levels of the chaplain's role, but it didn't always happen. It wasn't my agenda. I wasn't there to um, tell save people souls. To, to save souls or tell people to live differently. I was there, yes, at times to challenge behavior, but really to help people live with one another 
and in one sense uh, deal with their relationships outside. I mean, that was why I'd visit the, the, the contact centre. Not intruding on the visits, but you'd wander through and they'd say, oh, there's the Padre. He'd call over and if you called over, you'd go, and this is my partner and these are my kids. And, and it was just to say hello and confidence building, essentially. Many of the men, particularly in those tougher prisons like Pentridge, did their time. And I remember Billy speaking to me about how he did his time by himself. And that was part of his way of dealing with it. But looking at solitary confinement, that's another scenario altogether. You would have seen it. What does solitary confinement do to a person? Well, I, I deal with this in the book, Rochelle. There's a whole chapter on solitary confinement. And I address the question as to whether the imposition of solitary confinement, which is very widespread in the prisons in Australia, is another punishment other than that imposed by the courts. Because in the courts, the magistrate or the judge assesses all the information and decides, uh, not necessarily on guilt, that's often the jury that might do that in the higher court, uh, but he he or she decides um, how long the person should be given. But the question is, if that person's going to be effectively in solitary confinement for five years, 10 years or 15 years, uh, is the imposition of solitary confinement a further punishment outside of the judiciary by the executive arm of government? And people might be surprised, but clearly they'd know that some people are in solitary confinement, really bad, bad guys, bad women. But uh, my estimation is that 5 to 10% of the prison population around Australia is held in one form of solitary confinement or another. Some of it is for their own protection. Some, is, some of it's for disciplinary charges. And, um, and some of it's for punishment if they'd breached internal security. But I've done a court report for the Supreme Court in Tasmania where a person was held in solitary confinement uninterrupted for four and a half years. And he didn't commit any crime during that time. He was just non-cooperative. And fortunately, the Supreme Court judge uh, resolved that situation. But could you believe it? Four and a half years, this person didn't have a television, didn't have a radio. He was entitled to one book, no contact visits all through that time, only box visits, you know, with a telephone looking through a glass screen. Not for four months, four and a half years. And, you know, there are probably... Quite a few cases like that in every state and territory of Australia. Since you've been a a prison chaplain, you're you're no longer a a prison chaplain, Peter. Talking about the prison populations, and you mentioned this in your book, that the population, particularly in Victoria, has quadrupled. Can you tell me why and what should we do about this? Well, Victoria in criminal justice area has always been fairly progressive compared to the closest comparison, New South Wales. Fairly similar in population numbers, fairly similar in terms of serious crime. But for decades, several decades that I can recall, New South Wales has always had a, a prison population twice that of Victoria. Mm. Now, New South, it's not only Victoria where it's quadrupled, around the country. Uh, including Western Australia in particular, but New South Wales also and Queensland, the numbers have increased at four times the rate of population. So it's not, you say, oh, well, Australia's got a bigger population now, therefore the prison population will you know, reasonably be larger. No, 
Over the last 20 years, the prison populations in all the states and territories have increased at four times the rate of population growth. And at the same time, and this can be evidenced statistically, serious crime, major crime, has not increased during that time. In fact, the most serious murders started going down from the 1980s. Uh, armed robberies started going down in the, uh, 10 years later. So across the board, serious crimes diminished, yet the prison population is increasing at four times. How could that be so? Well, changing in the, the legislation. You get a very bad incident where an ABC journalist has raped and murdered several years ago by a person who was on bail. And as a consequence, the knee-jerk reaction is that the bail law is changed. And that doesn't affect serious people like that person, but it affects everyone throughout the whole state. So if you're an 18-year-old young lady, or if you're a 25-year-old escaping from domestic violence, uh, and uh, you don't have stable accommodation, and you commit a crime, even if it's shoplifting, if you don't have anywhere to live, you're not going to get bail. Now, you might have to wait a week, or it could be a month. In more serious matters, it could be several months. Uh, and then when you come to court, the magistrate would say, well, time served, but I would never have given this person six months anyhow. I would have given them a $200 fine or a, you know, a probation or a supervision order. So in Victoria, about 40% of our prison population now is made up of people like that, on remand, not convicted of an offence. And these are not the people charged with murder or armed robbery or serious sex offences. Many of them are these people that I you know, categorise together as disabled, people who don't have stable accommodation, Aboriginal women in particular. Uh, the numbers of Aboriginal women on remand, refused bail, has increased around the country, uh, but also women generally, particularly those escaping from domestic violence. I think recidivist offenders too, it's an enormous concern. And I know a lot of police see the same people coming again, again and again, committing the same crimes, appearing before court, before a magistrate. How do you deal with young offenders? How do you turn them round? And is it really to do with your postcode? Because this is one of the things that you mentioned in your book, that your postcode can determine your outcome and, you know, virtually how you're going to spend your life. Uh, Rochelle, I would say that's correct what you said with one change. The postcode doesn't determine, it could predict. Uh, because we all know stories of even uh, brothers and sisters, siblings growing up in the same family and one or two become very serious criminals and the other two or three go the other way and uh, you know, get into uh, stable employment and stable relationships. So your postcode can predict as a group, as a population, what's likely to happen in terms of you know, a large number of people going to court or going to prison. It doesn't actually determine. The individual always has, to a greater degree or lesser degree, some opportunity of free choice. But the the, 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 the amount of freedom that they have can be determined by what we call the social determinants of imprisonment. Housing, health, education and employment. So if we really wanted to tackle the social issues in our community, we don't just need more police officers or bigger prisons or longer sentences. We need to look at developing communities that are livable and affordable. And that means, particularly for the indigenous uh, population around the country, we need to look at those social determinants, stable housing, health services, education, and access to good employment.
I think you've pointed out exactly where the government should be investing and spending its money in those in communities and in reinforcing and I suppose strengthening the, those communities. Now you've published, as we've already mentioned, an excellent book, Seeking Justice in the Criminal Justice System in Australia. What's been the reviews? What's been the response so far? It's had very good reviews from people who are experts in the field, uh, more experienced perhaps than I. Uh, particularly around publishing. People from universities, a a very key barrister here in Melbourne, Julian McMahon, who's done a lot of death penalty cases overseas. So the reviews have been excellent. I want this book not to, to sell tens of thousands. I want this book to land in the right places with people who make the, who have decision making and policy making. So that means political representatives who need a lot more courage to address the underlying problems, but also people who are policy advisors and those who are working in universities who are teaching, uh, teachers, nurses, social workers, psychologists. So I'm not just telling stories of my time in the prison. I'm drawing on those experiences and a lot of international work as well, uh, study tours overseas, and pointing to the structural problems that we have in Australia at the moment. Because what we're doing now is based on the old model that was instigated in Australia back in 1788. Uh, We just transferred what the English were doing in very different times and imposed it on the uh, Aboriginal community and the Australian uh, settlement after European settlement. So I'm talking about a complete change of direction around restorative justice rather than retributive justice. Now, I haven't got time to explain what that's all about. You've got to buy the book. But restorative justice means that the outcome's healing, uh, both for the victim and the offender. And in our present situation, for decades, we've been hearing that the victims are overlooked and their voices aren't heard. This model that we operate in Australia, which we've inherited from England, is largely ensuring that that remains the case. And I believe that's not acceptable. Uh, I think what we need is to develop new models, and they do operate in other parts of the world, and I've seen them, uh, that brings about uh, forgiveness, brings about healing, brings about reconciliation. At the moment, as you mentioned before, you know, almost 50% of those who are released from prison around Australia re-offend within 12 months. If that was to happen in our health system, going for heart surgery and 50% were complete failures. Or if you, our school system, uh, you know that 50% of kids weren't even passing the exams, we'd say something's going wrong. What is it? Leadership, get a new principal, develop uh, incentives, motivate the students. Uh, So we need to apply the same sort of critiques to the criminal justice system as we do to those others like health, education, transport, and so on. What's next for you, Peter, after having done the book? What's next? Oh, look, most of my work in the policy area and advocacy area has been done over the previous 20 years. I'm not looking to, at my age, uh, to embark on a new career. Uh, I'm happy to make this contribution, which largely came as a result of the COVID lockdowns. Had to keep myself sane. Uh, everyone struggled to do that, had to have a a challenge uh, and it gave me time to reflect and to think and to write. But I'm working now as encourager of others to mentor new leaders 
uh, new people of passion, uh, new, a new generation that's interested in promoting human rights and social justice in our community. Also a new generation that's interested in creating a safer community. So this is my approach is not actually soft on crime, it's actually being tough because it means a lot of challenging of behaviour. But the outcome that we're looking at is a more cohesive community and a safer community. At the present time, the system and the model we're operating on is not achieving that at all. Thank you very much, Peter. It's been a pleasure sitting with you on The Crime Couch today. Good, Rochelle. Pleasure. The Crime Couch is proudly sponsored by Bank Vic. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Couch.